Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 138 of Game Talk Radio. I am Greg, Game Trade Greg, some people call me. I'm the owner of Game Trade in De Pere. You can find me on Twitter at Game Trade Greg. Uh, you can follow this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening. And of course, you can subscribe to us on YouTube at youtube.com slash droprate. Droprate's a collective of three fellas and myself. Two fellas and myself, three total. And uh, we like to do some fun video game related content, I suppose. How's everyone doing today? You doing okay? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, if you've been listening all the time, you know that... Uh, you know that last week I did not have an episode. I want to apologize again for that, but uh, you know it, it was just one of those days. It was one of those weeks. Um, I've got a lot of hell weeks coming up. I mentioned last week, so and that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But last week was kind of a relaxing week, so I took a little bit of an extra uh, mental health day. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that term. You know, some days you just need like a. They used to call them like a me day. I need a me day. That's what it was. You know, it's called a mental health day. That's what they call it now. But it was uh, it was great and it was really really relaxing and fun. Had a lot of things going on, though. Uh, a lot of things I had to take care of still. That's kind of the life of a business owner. But you're never really off the clock. <laughs> but uh, but it's okay. Everything's great. And I, and I hope everything's the same with you. I hope everyone had a good Labor Day. Hopefully you got to have like an, a little bit extra time off. Uh, and hopefully you got to enjoy that long weekend. And if you didn't, well, then I'm sorry that my podcast was not there to comfort you the day after. <laughs> However, um, it is back to business folks it is we are done messing around no more mental health days it is back to the grind not that i i don't know i love this one i talking about i love doing this and i missed it and i'm gonna try uh today today's episode is is a little strange because i want to uh i want to i'm gonna be a little uh I'm, I'm gonna wax nostalgic today and i think what i mean by that is we got two stories that kind of came up that weren't really stories they were just kind of things but they opened up the ability for me to tell some stories. The, the first being that uh, obviously I've been playing a lot of World of Warcraft Classic. So I want to kind of talk about that. I want to talk about the launch and I want to talk about my experience with that game the first time I played it, the original World of Warcraft. So I'm going to wax nostalgic about World of Warcraft. We're going to talk about the old days and what it was like and, and, and everything like that. I'm going to tell you some stories about the guild, the guildies I met in real life, some of the great ones that I'm still friends with today, and some of the awful ones that... Uh, you know, that if I never heard from him again, I, I wouldn't uh, shed a tear. And, and then yesterday, so Monday, was the 20th anniversary of the Sega Dreamcast. The Sega Dreamcast. And I am going to, man, I am feeling nostalgic for it. It, it. it was a great system. I loved it, but it was not perfect. And it was not better than the PlayStation 2. Uh, but it was still a great system. It deserved its place, and I'm glad that it came out. I'm glad I got to enjoy it, and I'm glad that uh, that I bought one when I did. And so I want to talk a little about that because I was working at Software Etc. at the time, which would later become GameStop. And so I have some interesting like insider info from the sales side of it and, and a few little stories about the Dreamcast in general and kind of how that all went down and, and kind of what happened to it. And then, of course, uh, and then lastly, the only real story I want to talk about was that uh, last week there was a Nintendo Direct with lots of great information, but one of my favorite pieces was that they announced that the Switch Online is now getting Super Nintendo games. And so they have the list of Super Nintendo games you can now play for free as long as you have a Nintendo Online subscription. And I think they added 20 games, 20, 
20 games, something like that. Anyway, we're going to go down the list because there's some, there's some absolute bangers on that list. <laughs> uh, um, and, uh, and there's some real stinkers too, but stinkers and bangers. That's a new, new segment, everybody. Stinkers and bangers. <clears throat> um, just joking. But uh, so I've got my game of the week picked out. This is not necessarily a banger, but it holds a special place for me. So I'll talk about that. And then I have my pickup pile of the week, which is a little different than usual. So my pickup pile of the week uh, has a few games, but also has some comic books this week. So uh, I've been, how do I want to say this? I've been dipping my toe in the water of comic book collecting. Uh, I've always been a comic book collector from the 90s, so there were certain issues I wanted to have again that I had when I was a kid. Uh, that I, For some reason, I don't have. I have a bunch of my comics from when I was a kid. I have like what I thought was all of them, but I'm missing a few of my key books. It really makes me sad. Like I had the first appearance of Gambit, had the first appearance of the Black Symbiote, costume on Spider-Man and Secret Wars. Yeah, you know, I had some of that stuff, and it was really frustrating to me that I just don't know where they are. And I don't. there's nowhere else they could be unless there's another box of comics I'm missing. But when I look at my old comics, it seems like everything's there, my original run of X-Men and everything's kind of there. So it's weird. It sucks. Um, it really sucks. So, but that's a little bit different pickup pile of week this week. So we're going to talk about that. I picked up some, some cool issues. Um, some that were key books like, uh, well, anyway, we'll talk about it later. Um, but anyway, uh, well, let's get this, uh, let's get this show on the road. I've been babbling on for five minutes of an intro. Um, and this is funny cause I haven't done it yet, but I might have new bumper music today. So if you heard a different intro, then it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Uh, if you if you heard the same music as always, then I got lazy and didn't feel like looking for new music. <laughs> uh, but anyway, with that being said, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm taking another sip of my water here before before I go into it. <sighs> All right. <clears throat> All right. Let's get it started. Here we go. So first up on the podcast today, we're going to be talking about. The Super Nintendo games and what they recently added to the Nintendo Switch online service. So this came out, this news was in the Nintendo Direct late last week. And Nintendo has finally added to almost everyone's request. Nintendo has pretty much uh, said, here you go, and offered around 20 Super Nintendo games to play on the Nintendo Switch online. So as long as you have the Switch online service, which is like, I think the $20 a year, is that right? $20 a year? I, I don't remember. It's not as much as the other ones. They used to give you access to Nintendo games. You could play totally for free. Now you can play Super Nintendo games. Excellent. Excellent. This is very good news. Uh, and so we're going to go down the list, and I'm going to kind of talk about games I've played before and which ones I haven't. And uh, and we'll talk about the list. We'll see how it goes. So uh, along with some troubling news, unfortunately, Nintendo's no longer going to have a consistent schedule for releasing games, which is kind of unfortunate. But if you release 20 at a time, who cares? Uh, so here we go. So these are the Super Nintendo games released for the Super Nintendo Online service, which is active right now. Not to mention, you can also buy controllers. So just like they did with the NES, where you could buy wireless Bluetooth NES controllers, you can now buy wireless Bluetooth Super Nintendo controllers that are officially made. And these are actually really cool. I'm, I'm a fan of this. I think this is awesome. Uh, and you can only buy these if you're a Nintendo Switch Online member, which is sort of brilliant, um, I guess, to make people sign up for it just so they can buy something that might be considered a rarity. <laughs> so uh, anyway, <clears throat> again, back to the games. Here we go. So first up, they put these all in, uh, I think, alphabetical order. Except, well, it starts with the T. Okay, that's fine. So they're in alphabetical order. So first up is Brawl Brothers. I've seen this game many times. I've never actually played it. I think it's a beat-em-up. 
Um, so that's it's an interesting one to see. And I think it was published by Jalico, I want to say. Uh, Breath of Fire, a Capcom RPG that's very good. Breath of Fire 1, 2, and 3 are all incredible games. 4 is pretty good. And 5 Dragon Quarter for PS2 is awful. Don't play it. But uh, Breath of Fire, very good RPG. Very good to see. Demon's Crest. This is kind of incredible. Demon's Crest is a very rare Super Nintendo cartridge. Uh, it's essentially a side-scrolling platformer. It, it's got this kind of weird RPG, like, overmap. But uh, really awesome, awesome game. Another Capcom game. And the loose cartridge goes for, like, 100 to 120 bucks. Like, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's what we refer to in the biz as a banger. Um, F-Zero, obviously totally classic. Uh, the Super Nintendo F-Zero is actually really fun, too. I've played it many times, and I like it. You know, it's that same sort of... Uh, racing game is like Mario Kart where you've got the kind of flat tracks, but they they get this kind of pseudo 3D look. I think it's it works really well. Joe and Mac 2 Lost in the Tropics, another uncommon game, uh, another more expensive cartridge. I want to say it's about a 50 or $60 cartridge. Uh, Kirby's Dream Course. So that's the Kirby golfing game. <laughs> so I understand why it would be on there, but then I start to not understand when I see the next game is Kirby's Dreamland 3. So if you're going to want to, if you want to put a Kirby game on here, there was Kirby's Dreamland 3 or Kirby Superstar Ultra. But why put two of them on there, one of them being Dream Course? Not that Dream Course is bad. I'm not, I actually think it's kind of fun, but eh, kind of a weird choice. Uh, then Pilot Wings, another staple in the Super Nintendo library. I, I actually really love the original Pilot Wings, I, I played that a lot. Uh, when I was younger, I didn't have a Super Nintendo growing up, but when I would borrow one from a friend or something, there were a few games that were staples, and that, that was one of them that I played a lot. Star Fox, awesome. You know, another one, though, some of these games were obviously on the Super Nintendo Classic, so it's not like these are the first time these are coming back. But this is still really cool. Stunt Race FX, this is a new one. It has not been, uh, as noted here in the article, it has not been made available outside of the original Super Nintendo yet, so this is the first time you can play it. Not a great game, though, if I'm being honest. <laughs> um, Super EDF, Earth Defense Force. So a lot of people don't realize this. The first Earth Defense Force, which now they're like third-person action alien slaughtering RPG, uh, action games. Uh, this was actually like a shmup, and it was pretty good, though. Earth Defense Force is good. Super Ghouls and Ghosts, another Capcom game. Okay, so Capcom was all in on the Super Nintendo service. They're like, here, take take like five of our best games. Like, boom, here you go. Uh, Super Ghouls and Ghosts, another great game. Super difficult Ghosts and Goblins sequel. Uh, Super Mario Kart, obviously got Mario Kart on there. Um, and, and a good Mario Kart it is. Super Mario World, duh. <laughs> Super Mario World 2, that's good to see. Not my favorite Mario game. In fact, it's pretty low on the list. But I do like the art style. And it is, uh, it is, it is beloved, I would say. I think that's fair to say. There are a lot of people that absolutely loved it. Uh, Super Metroid. You gotta have it. And again, a lot of these games were on the Super Nintendo Classic, but Super Metroid is Super Metroid. I mean that that this is Super Metroid's probably top ten games of my life. It is up there. I remember going to a friend's house and seeing it for the first time, and I just couldn't believe it because I had played Metroid on the original Nintendo. But when we got our next system, we sold our Nintendo to a neighbor, and we bought a Sega Genesis. So, I, and I love the Genesis. Don't get me wrong, but I missed out on some great Super Nintendo experiences. And I remember going to a friend's house and seeing Super Metroid for the first time and just hearing the sound effects and how, like, when you first get there and you kind of run through the old part of Zebes or whatever and uh, Plant Zebes and you kind of go through, like, the... You essentially go backwards and down and then you go through the mother brain stuff and you're just like, man, this is... Like, they made you feel nostalgic only a few years after the game came out. It was really well done. Super Metroid is... 
Mm, man, that, that is just one of those games. And obviously it spawned an entire genre, uh, which I refuse to call Metroidvanias. I just think that's a terrible name. But it did. It was that style of open-world side-scrolling RPG. Uh, it, it, it spawned, it made had so much love for this game, it spawned a genre. And I think that's pretty cool. Um, going on to the next one, Super Puyo Puyo 2. Uh, that's like a... I mean that's a great game. I love Puyo. Um, it's uh, it, it's like Doctor Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine or uh, Cur- the Kirby one, um, Kirby's Avalanche for Super Nintendo. That's what Puyo Puyo is, and so they just licensed it out to these companies to make their own versions of it. But that's what it is. So it is a good game. It's it's great to be on the list. Now we got oh, oh we got a scorcher here, Super Soccer and Super Tennis. Like bam, bam, back to back, amazing sports games. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, a staple and, and another iconic game of the Super Nintendo. You know, and this is this harkens me back to the PlayStation Classic video that I did a few months ago where, like, they just couldn't get that list to make the, the must-haves. You know, this list is the must-haves plus some bonus features. And not saying every must-have is on here. Obviously, there's stuff missing, like Super Punch-Out!, um, Oh God, I could go on. I could go on rants. Super Mario RPG. I mean, there there are ones. You know, Final Fantasy three. I mean, there are there are games that are missing here. Chrono Trigger. You know, there are games that are that are maybe missing. But again, they're gonna add more later. So just calm down. Just relax, everybody. And here's the here's an interesting thought that I had. What if we didn't just keep getting the games we've already gotten, like say on the Super Nintendo Classic? I'd be okay with them reaching deeper into the bag and pulling out some of the weirdies. You know, pull out Hagane. <laughs> That's a $600 cartridge. Pull out Hagane. Uh, you know, pull out uh, some of these just crazy obscure games that people want to play. They'd be awesome. They'd be great. Pull out Ogre Battle, you know. They'd be awesome. So anyway, that is the list of Super Nintendo games. All in all, it is a li- It is a great list. I'd say, you know, it's a 9 out of 10. A few weirdies in here. I guess they just wanted to put some sports games in, I guess. Um, and it's difficult with licensed games like Tecmo Super Bowl because if they have the NFL license, it's hard to get, you, you don't have that, you know, right now they don't have the exclusive rights to that, uh, EA does, so, you know, there's not really much you could do, but what about this? And I know we've already got a, a slew of Capcom games, where's Mega Man Soccer? Let's put that on there, is it a Super Soccer, really? You know, or, um, yeah, I don't know, you know, that that's the sort of stuff I, I could see. You know, or uh, or where's Super Double Dragon or something like that? You know, I'd like to see uh, more of those. And I know we will in the future. Uh, but all in all, a pretty dang good list. I'd say I give it a solid nine out of ten list. This is, you know, like a few a few slips. But again, they're for people that wanted to play them. So it's not every game needs to be catered to me personally, but it's pretty great. It's pretty great. And then, of course, like I said earlier, they are making these Super Nintendo controllers, which are amazing i love this and i know 8-bit dope has been making some great great wireless controllers and that's awesome and i have them and i do like them especially like i even have here i have the sega genesis one uh which is my favorite genesis controller i've ever used like hands down this this d-pad um and the six button controller like this is the best genesis controller i've ever used um that being said if sega released an official bluetooth wireless controller that was rechargeable like this one i'd probably buy that Eh, well that's a good actually you know what this is a probably better design. Like, this just feels better in my hands. But anyway, the Super Nintendo controller arguably is one of the best of all time. And so it's funny because if you look at that, that's literally a PlayStation 1 controller without the handles. 
So, uh, so, you know, and, and I love the PlayStation controller. So the point being is that that controller is very good. Super Nintendo controller is one of the best and you could use that to play most games. The only problem with, cause they did the same thing with, I don't think they have a picture. They did the same thing with the Nintendo controllers for when the NES online came out. And so you could get a two pack of wireless NES controllers. I have them behind my green screen here and they're great, but you can't use them for much because they only really have the two face buttons. A Super Nintendo controller with two shoulder buttons gives you much more options to play a lot more of the other games, not just the Super Nintendo online games. So I do like that a lot. I think that's uh, I think that's pretty awesome, actually. Uh, and so, again, great list. Good job, Nintendo. They have said, though, that they're not getting onto a regular schedule for releases anymore. So I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means that they're only going to release games every six months i don't know but i don't like the slow trickle that's the only thing i don't like about this whole thing and this started with the wii virtual console and i had a wii day one and every wednesday i think it was or tuesday or wednesday it would update the store with their new games or whatever was it every week i think it was every week or it was every couple weeks or something and i'd be on there that morning and be like what new games are on the store today and it just seemed like every week here's one game here's here's a game or two like Give me the option to buy everything. Put 100 games on the store, and let me just pick the ones I want and buy them. But they kept doing the slow trickle. I just don't want this to be a super slow trickle again. I, I just, there's so many great games, and I understand that this is a, this is a great way to make announcements, right? It's a great way to, to be like, oh, hey, we're adding five new games this week if you have a slow news week or if you need to come back from some bad news or something. Like, hey, here's a positive announcement. We're releasing 10 more Super Nintendo games. Like, I get it from a PR standpoint, but I just... I would almost rather they launched a Netflix type service with more games. But then again, I say that. And now that I think of it, there is something I think is a real thing called the Netflix effect, which is if you have too many options to play, it's hard to focus on one game because if it annoys you or it frustrates you, I should say in my case, I know not everybody's like this, but you want to move on to something else. We've had too many options, almost too many options. And I say that as somebody who's got over 1,500 video games. <laughs> Sometimes you have. It is possible to have too many options to play. Um, yes, yes, that is true. That is a real thing. <laughs> All right. So that was really the only, like I said, the only like news story part I want to talk about. And then I want, I want to get really nostalgic with some stuff. And I have a feeling this is going to run the podcast long. Because when I get talking about nostalgic things, I start, ah, I start getting all... Uh, all misty-eyed, you know? <laughs> um, but uh, but seriously, let's talk about World of Warcraft Classic. And I did talk about this <clears throat> a few weeks ago, remember, because I talked about how I was groggy because I'd been playing it all night long, which was true. I'd only slept a few hours that night. And, uh, you know, so World of Warcraft uh, is really special to me. Uh, I started playing it day one. I did not beta test it, though. Uh, it was something that I had applied for the beta. I think I got in, but by the time I got in, uh, I was already playing EverQuest 2, which, this is so funny. So, okay, I'll, I'm going to back it up a little bit. So, I played a lot of Final Fantasy XI. I played a lot of Final Fantasy XI. And I really loved that game. And it was my that was my first MMO experience for the most part. I mean, I played Fantasy Star Online on the Dreamcast, and I had played like a like EverQuest 1 but never a lot. Like I just those games didn't grab me. I tried Ultima online with my dial-up connection, it didn't work for anything. So, you know, whatever. So I played a lot of Final Fantasy 7. Got into a Link shell. Don't even know how I got into it. Got my brother into it and me and him were in this guild for a long time. And we did the whole thing. We were on the forums. You know, I 
I applied to be an officer because I just loved this, this link shelf so much. And I was always trying to help people and I was leading groups and stuff. And I remember that, uh, basically we played that and they decided to devote on the officer this time instead of the guild leader picking it. And so all the things I had done alongside the guild leader, like running raids and doing all stuff and being informational didn't help at all because there was someone in the group who didn't you know, have a job and was on 24 seven. And so everyone just knew that person and they were like, Oh, let's vote for this person. We know this person. So I didn't get it. And I was really disappointed by that more disappointed than I should have been if I'm being totally honest. And so my brother and I quit the game essentially together. We left the link shelf and I told myself if we, ever play an MMO again, we're going to make our own guild and we're going to run it the right way and we're going to do things the right way. Damn it. <laughs> because we got treated so badly by that other guild. We wouldn't do that to other people. We wouldn't make them feel bad. That's what we said. That was our mission. And so we hopped around a little bit after that. I played a little bit of city of heroes. I played that for a month or two and I liked it well enough. I suppose it was lacking. It was empty. The powers were, eh. I made my, my superhero in city heroes was, uh, was like a, a gray Fox ripoff from metal gear. He was just cybernetic ninja. Uh, and then two weeks because I was so hungry for a new MMO two weeks before wow launched EverQuest two comes out and I'm like, Oh, I gotta, I'm just hungry for an MMO. So I bought it. Played it for two weeks, and it's fine. It's a fine game. Not complaining about EverQuest 2, but the first day I played World of Warcraft when it came out, I was done. <laughs> I was done with EverQuest. I was done with every other MMO I'd ever played. That was going to be the last MMO I would ever play, as I told myself. This game is so freaking amazing. And it was. And that's not even rose-colored glasses now. At the time, it was awe-inspiring. So a couple of the things. World of Warcraft did really, really well was they added the questing system. This is something that was not really a thing in any MMO up to that point, or I should say any MMO that I played, like the big ones. You didn't have a ton of quests in EverQuest. You didn't, ironically enough, uh, you didn't have a ton of quests in City Heroes. Like you had them, but it wasn't to this degree. Those were still the old style of camp and pull, camp and pull. You camp in a spot, you pull mobs to, you fight them, right? Or you work your way through a dungeon, same sort of thing, which World of Warcraft has, of course. But World of Warcraft had, one, it had a lot of little cities, so you start in a little town, you go to a little bigger town, and then you find the big, big town, and then you go back to some smaller towns and medium-sized towns. There were tons of places to go. It felt like a real world in that way. When I played Final Fantasy XI, there were only three towns. You start in one of them. Uh, I think there's technically like a fourth town, like Juno or whatever, but like there's the three starting towns, and there's like that's it. You just go to different zones of monsters and kill enemies. There's like no encampments, no small. It's weird, you know, like it doesn't seem natural. World of Warcraft did that in a really good way. It made sense. Also, it helped that my brother and I were Warcraft 3 mega nerds. So we had played all the way through Warcraft 3. We loved the story. We loved the story of Arthas. We loved the story of Illidan, Malfurion, and Sargeras, and like everything, you know, everything. Uh, Warcraft two and three, Warcraft one, two, three. Like I love the stories and I know they're not the like most in-depth characters. Okay. I know they're flaws and I know it's not the best writing in the world, but I loved it. You know, I absolutely loved it. And so we were going from that game and that game led right into world of Warcraft. And so then to be able to play a character in this beautiful world that you've been enjoying for the last decade was something else. It was really cool. And it sucked us right in one of the final nails in the coffin as well was that my brother, always wanted to be a Tauren warrior. That was his big thing. I want to be a Tauren warrior. And so when they announced that the final race for the, I think it was the final race for the horde were the forsaken. So you got to be undead. I was like, holy crap, I get to be undead and I get to team up 
with my brother who wants to be a torrent. Like, it worked out. It was just perfect. So I made an undead warlock. He made a uh, torn warrior. And, and that was where it was. And so anyway, the game was incredible. And so right away, we're like, we're making our own guild. And so my guild is called True Grave. And the name origins of that are actually from the anime Gungrave. Because if you've never watched it, True Grave was the name of the main character grave he his name is brandon heat his his when he's part of the syndicate part of millennium he uh he uh he has his own like squad basically and that was and that was called true grave and so that's where i got the name from gun grave is one of my all-time favorite animes and and it fit you know like it kind of fit the world of warcraft motif it was cool it it was it was original enough you know like people would see that and go oh that's kind of cool you know, but like, what is it? You know, and if you didn't know what it meant, you could still go. Oh, that's kind of neat. Um, I even made up my license plate on my Lancer. <laughs> I've got True Grave as my my license plate. Um, so we made a guild right away, and we, our, the rules were, you know, we're only gonna invite people we know. And we got up to like twenty, maybe thirty people, because as people as World of Warcraft was out longer, more and more casual people started playing it. And that's what also was brilliant about World of Warcraft was, no matter how bad you were, you could play this game and you could get to sixty. You could slog your way through leveling up and eventually get to 60, even if you're the worst player in the whole world. You're terrible. So it appealed to a lot of casual MMO fans. So a lot of people played. As people played, we grew and grew just pulling people in. And then I had a few friends that were like, you know, if we want to do raids and stuff, we need more people in the guild. And so I loosened up a little bit and I was like, okay, well, if people know people in real life, they can get them in, you know. And then we just started meeting good people out there. We'd run an instance with someone who seemed nice and helpful. It's like, all right, you seem cool. Let's let's get you in the guild. And we just kept growing and growing. And, and we got to a point where we were, you know, we were running our own. We could run our own 20-mans. But before that, before there were 20-mans, there were 40-man raids. Uh, and... So we didn't have enough people to do that, you know, and we uh, we found like groups of of uh, another guild, basically, that had 20 people that wanted to go. And the two of us teamed up together to put a 40 man raid together and organizing a 40 person raid is. Awful, uh, especially when you have two guilds and you've got guild leadership on one side and you've got to come up with a fair way of divvying up loot, which uh, is commonly the, the common method we used was DKP, which stands for dragon kill points. It's an old EverQuest system that was invented. And basically you have like a, a track of everyone who's in the raid. And if you kill bosses, you get points. And then whoever is the top points, like say a warlock piece and whoever the top warlock is, they get the next piece and then it kicks them back down to the bottom. And then you earn points as you go. So the more times you go on a raid, basically, the more chance you get to get loot, but also the higher you build yourself up. So it, it encouraged people to come back. And it's actually not a bad system. It's just very clinical, right? It's just very, you got to do it this way. You got to do it that way. And so, yeah. And and uh, so we started doing that. And unfortunately, at one point, that guild, well, I guess I'm going to say fortunately on this part, because there were a lot of great people. And so the leaders of that guild decided one day, you know what? We want to do more. We want to get further than we're able to get with having a small guild and teaming with this other small guild. You know, we so they left, went to another. They they started new characters on another server. And they just abandoned their guild. They basically disbanded it. And so all these players that were with them, we knew a lot of them. You know, they kind of felt there were a lot of them felt betrayed because they were kind of like they were like us, like a casual raiding guild. So a lot of the people were actual real life friends. And so when they left, people were like, "What the hell? This sucks." And so we said, "I'll tell you what." Everyone just come on into our guild. We, we brought in everybody. We doubled in size in a day. And that was a mistake. 
<laughs> because uh, there were a whole bunch of people there that just did not like it. And they were just like, you know, we don't like this. We don't like that you do this way. And I'm like, hey, that's totally cool. If you want to leave, you can. I'm just saying we wanted to give everyone a chance to come into the guild and decide if you want to stay. This way, because back then, it's like World of Warcraft was different that way too, where this was before cross-server stuff. This was not, you know, multiple instances on a server. This was one server. So if you if you lost contact with a person, obviously they were friendsless and messaging, but, you know, guild chat was used by a lot of people, you know, and, and like vent servers, we used Ventrilo. And so vent servers were how you communicated. So if they left and, the, and that vent server wasn't active anymore, it was hard to get a hold of people, hard to chat with people. And so we brought everybody in and there were some people that like didn't like the way we did things, didn't like us. And I was like, that's totally fine. Then just leave. And they did. And they left in like a very grandiose, like, oh, you suck, you know, fashion or whatever. And you take that personally, like I did. And of course I'm like, that's fine, whatever. And so that was kind of our first big drama. And I didn't realize that this was going to be the first of well, many things to come, I suppose, <laughs> dramatically, because what I found later was that running a guild in World of Warcraft, a raiding guild, was basically a second job for me. I was working as a manager at GameStop, and I had to come home and be basically a manager of Truegrave. Because I, uh, that's just, it's, it's what it takes, you know, if you, if you want to be there. And I also, you know, I wanted to still be a fun, casual guild. Like, you didn't have to raid to be in the guild. But then, when you want that casual side, then you've got people who who, you know, I said how you could get to 60 as the worst player in WoW. You can't raid as the worst player in WoW. You need to be attentive. You need to be paying attention. And so you'd have all these casual people going like, that'd be really fun. Can I go? And you have to tell these people, I'm sorry, no, because you're not geared enough and you're not good enough. You know, I'm sorry, you're just not talented. You can't, you can barely run a five-man instance. You can't follow instructions in a 40-person raid. And that's tough, you know. My brother and I, we joke, my younger brother Joe and I were, were we're best friends. And so we ran this guild together and you know, it was, it was good cop, bad cop all the time. Um, if this might sound surprising to you, I was the bad cop. I was the hard ass. I was the straight line. Like, boom, this is, this is how life is. And my younger brother, Joe, he was the, Hey, you know, you know, it's, it's just, I understand why you'd be upset, but you know, you know, we had to do it that way and, and, and we really hope you stick around. And, and he was like, the, like, like I was the abusive one. And then he would come in and be like, it's okay. Dad didn't mean to yell at you. You know, he's just really stressed out from work, you know, like it sounds terrible, but that's kind of, uh, it's kind of where I was at. And, uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, we're going along, we're doing our thing. We got people coming in, we got people leaving, you know, people I knew in real life, this would hurt the most. People I know in real life would join the guild and be like, you know what? I just, I want to raid more. This isn't, you know, I don't care about people. I want to raid and get gear. And you're like, I know you in real life, man. Why can't we like, why? I, I didn't understand why people didn't want to be like me, which was to raise everyone up because that's what I was doing in my head, right? In my head, I wasn't just trying to get the best gear for me. I was trying to get the best gear for these 20 to 40 people. And so I guess I always wonder why people could be so selfish. Like, and there were people who, if they didn't get the gear on a run that they wanted, they wouldn't go again. You know, like, oh, this is, I'm going to go with someone else. I didn't, I should have gotten that piece of gear, not them. And you're like, like, we're going to go again next week. Like, what's the rush? You know, we're at end game. Like if you beat all this and get all the best gear, there's nothing you can do. Right. And, uh, and so it was frustrating. And there was a time when I would log in and I'd get messages from five to 10 people instantly. Like, oh, Greg, there's a problem. Oh, this person said this. Oh, that person said that. Did you hear about what happened in guilt chat? Oh, this person said that this person took loot from this person. This person did this. Did you see this on the forums? This person said this. And I'm like, ah, 
<laughs> so I would log in. I had to make a rule like you cannot message me within five minutes of logging in. I get to at least get into the game and start working on whatever I'm working on before, you know. And we had like a Ventrilo channel where I would go into it and be like, look, I'll pull you into a private chat. We could talk about it. But I want to actually play this game too, you know. And and I didn't get to play much. And that was my balance, right? I had to I had to farm materials for raids, farm mats for potions, for buffs and stuff on raids. I had to recruit new people, so I was constantly just doing five-man instances looking for talented people we could recruit. And then I had to, you know, deal with all the guild stuff. It was it was a full-time job, and I would work 9 to f- 9 to 6. And I would come home and raid from 6:30 to midnight. Or not raid, but like play World of Warcraft, 6.30 to midnight or 6.30 to 1 in the morning. And that was every day. That was every day. And then Sundays were our raid days. And so Sundays, I played, I woke up, started farming materials. Raids were at noon. You raid until 6 or 7 o'clock at night. And then you deal with Guild BS at the end. That that was my life for many years. Uh, very lonely. Uh, very pathetic. I understand it now. I'm just saying that that's the type of game this was, though. And it wasn't always the game, right? It was the the people. And so it was the way you played the game. It was the way I played it, the people, the, the relationships I made. That's why I logged in every day. Because if I didn't log in for a day or two and I didn't talk to these people that were my friends, I felt bad. Um, it also was a nice way because my brother and I weren't living together at the time anymore. Like I had left the house. I was in Green Bay. And he was uh, back near Stevens Point. And so like it was our way to stay connected too, though. You know, it was as best friends, it was our way to stick together. And, and so we did it. And then it came to a while where we were both getting a little burned out and we would take breaks while the other one ran the guild. The other one would take a break. And that worked for a little while. It was kind of like if you ever watch Underworld, the vampire movie with the vampires versus the werewolves and like the vampire lords all sleep in like a break and they all like come back alive every couple hundred years to run things. It was kind of like that, you know, so my brother would take a break for a few months. I would keep everything under control. And then he'd get back and be like, I need to take a break for a few months. And I would take a break and do something else or just, you know, get back to watching TV or whatever, you know, whatever it was. And uh, and then we we did that for a while and that worked for a while. And then ultimately what happened was we uh, well, you know what? Actually, I'll tell this little story. And I don't know if anyone listens to this that was a part of it, but I guess if they are, they can know how stressful and and awful it made me feel. (laughs) But so remember that I talked about that guild where the leaders left the server. So they leave. And all of a sudden, of course, you know, like a year later, they all come back like, oh, we missed you guys. We wanted to hang with our guys. Do you mind if we just join your guild and raid with you guys? You know, we don't want to start a guild again and get everyone back and yada, yada. And we're like, of course, old Greggy, right? The, the mean, the mean one of the group always says, of course, you guys can come back. You're friends. Let's get you back in here. Let's raid. Let's do it. Well, those guys, I should have known, of course, were super selfish. And they're like, you know what? We're going to run our own raids. Like, that's not how this works. Tuesday nights are our raid nights to do like ZG or what, whatever raids we're doing, right? And like, okay, that's our nights to do it. And so then they would say, well, we're going to do our, we're, we're not going to come along with the guild runs then because, you know, there's no room or whatever. Because we were pretty full. At that point, you'd sometimes have like 20 to 25 people for a 20 man and you had to, a few people had to sit out. And so they're like, okay. So then they would make their own. And then they'd pull four or five people from our guild run thus resulting in us being short. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not okay. I'm like, you guys can do your own raid if you want. If you can't get into this one, do your own. But you can't pull our people out. So then we, we had a big thing over that, you know, and they felt like I was too controlling. And I'm like, I'm trying to make this a fair thing for everyone. I don't think that's what everyone ever understood. I'm trying to make this a fair thing for everyone. And uh, and so anyway, whatever. Long story short, uh, 
they end up wanting to run because both my brother and I were getting burned out at the same time. And they were like, do you mind if we just take over the true grave runs? I'm like, you know what? That's fine. I don't want to run the raids anymore. You do it. Like, I'm totally cool with that. You know, be on Tuesday night, run the, run the guild runs. So then you'd have, so then what they started doing though, is there were maybe four or five people that were decent players. They weren't your best players, but they could get through a, they could get through a raid. If you, if you coached them through and you took your time, you could get them through raid. I, I drug them through raids before. Well, these guys didn't want to do that. <laughs> and so these guys then were like, well, we're going to take the 15 good people and we'll just fill in five of our friends off our friends list that aren't in the guild. And again, you need to gear up your guild members so that your guild can do bigger raids. That's the whole point, <laughs> right? And so we clashed over that. They eventually leave the guild again. And then they took a bunch of their friends with them. And it's like, okay. And that was kind of it for me. You know, I, there was this point where I was actually going to compete in a poker tournament at the casino and I was at, I was doing a poker tournament and before I started I got a text message saying you need to log on man everything's going to hell in the guild you need to log on and I just uh, I was like I, I can't I, I I I'm not at home I, I don't I'm not going home to deal with guild drama and so that kind of broke me and and then uh so that was like my it I was like you know what? it's time for me to be done and I can't do this anymore and so that was kind of it. And I came back for a few expansions, came back for Pandaria, played a bit, came back for Cataclysm, played a little bit, uh, came back. I played a lot of Legion. I will say Legion was a really good expansion. I liked that a lot. Did not like Battle for Azeroth at all. And then, of course, Wild Classic came out. And so with the good comes the bad with Wild Classic. And as much as I love it and it's teeming with nostalgia and reconnecting with old friends has been amazing. I'm starting to have anxiety again over guild stuff. Like I started freaking out because this person used to date this person and they broke up and had kind of a bad breakup. But now this person's married to this person and this person is the, the sister of my best friend. I'm just like, ah, again, this person used to be in the guild used to date this person. But now they're it's, it's like, Oh my God, I don't want to do this again. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> here we are. Uh, but anywho, um, all that being said, like I said, there was a lot of good and bad, but I wanted to wax a little nostalgic about it because I do love World of Warcraft and it, it hold, it'll always hold a special place in my heart. When I talk about top 10 games, you don't often think about an MMO or a game like this. It absolutely would be up there, though. I mean, World of Warcraft, I poured in, oh man, I mean, I couldn't even tell you how much time, but it was easily through the first two expansions, so that was... The first expansion was two years after, and then it was two years after that. So I played solid for about four or five years, like every hour of every day, four or five years. That's that's crazy stuff. So, uh, but it was good. And and it, World of Warcraft Classic, you know, while bringing back the anxieties, brought back the positives too. And and uh, the reason I kind of thought about it was because the story popped up where World of Warcraft had been around only out for five days when people beat the first raid and beat Ragnaros in five days. So not only did the, like, cause in three days, the first person hit level 60 and somehow two days later, enough people were 60 and geared enough to do molten core. <laughs> it's crazy to me. Uh, I'm still level 27 <laughs> by the way. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's crazy. Just crazy. Ah, Warcraft memories. Whew. That was a, that's a, that's a, that's a dangerous road to go down for me because I, as silly as it sounds, cause it's a video game. It's not the video game that caused the problem; it was the people, and and you know ultimately people are are can be pretty awful, and that's really what it came down to. It came down to trying to deal with selfish people, 
and awful people as opposed to like I wish everybody could have been like hey let's all work as a team together and sing kumbaya and hold hands <laughs> and I know that's an unreal expectation but my goodness would that have been amazing I think it would have been anyway um, and then lastly here so let's get into the final the final talking part the Sega Dreamcast so uh oh what do we got going on here there we go. That's what we needed. Not burn myself with the with the white screen. Uh, we're gonna be talking about the Sega Dreamcast. Here we go. And last up on the podcast today, we're gonna be talking about the twentieth anniversary of the Sega Dreamcast. And I can't believe it's been that long. I know it has been, but that's that's when it came out. This came out actually. I graduated in '99 from high school. <laughs> so yes, I'm old. Yes, I'm sorry, I'm old. The Dreamcast was something special. And now, it's certainly not the best system ever made. And I like the Dreamcast, okay? So this is not a Dreamcast bashing video. And if you love the Dreamcast and it's your favorite system, that's awesome. I'm glad that it is for you. Uh, and I'm going to talk about some great things about the Dreamcast. You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't the best system I've ever played, but it was fun. It was a great system. And so I want to talk a little bit about my my story getting it and a little bit about Dreamcast at the time and Sega at the time because I was actually working at Software Etc., which would later become GameStop. And so I have a little bit of insider info in selling the device and, and how people responded to it. So the the Dreamcast launched on 9999. Okay, Sega's US marketing department was always on with that stuff. Like they they understood like uh, you know, I mean, it, they just tried to make it cool. You know, like if you're going to release in 99 and you want to do it in fall of 99, 99.99, just do it. Um, so it was cool. Uh, Peter Moore was the head of Sega at the time, like the, the, and, and he's, you know, he's fine enough, I suppose. Uh, I, I've clashed with him on Twitter a little bit, you know, about the Dreamcast, even though I love it. Like he thinks I'm bashing it all the time. I'm not bashing the Dreamcast. Um, so Sega Dreamcast, uh, I remember pre-ordering it, um, and I pre-ordered the console, and I thought this is so cool. And I, to get money for it, I was selling plasma, like twice a week for a few months just to get enough money to buy. It. Like that's how badly I wanted this thing. I was selling part of my body to, uh, to pay for it, and, and 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 I was not disappointed. Originally, my my launch title was Blue Stinger because that was kind of the era of the survival horror games, Resident Evil was kicking butt and so you're like blue stingers like the dreamcast version of resident evil like yeah let's do it let's get let's get on it uh it was not in fact i went to software etc now this is what's funny this was before i worked there so this was a i i bought the dreamcast about four months before i started working there by the dreamcast and um i pre-ordered or i i i pre-ordered excuse me i pre-ordered the dreamcast i pre-ordered blue stinger I go to the the store before it's out, and there's a playable demo of Blue Stinger on a Dreamcast kiosk. I'm like, this is sweet. So I go to play it. Ooh, Blue Stinger, not sweet. So, <laughs> so I switched my pre-order instead to Soul Calibur, which was a great choice because Soul Calibur is one of the best Dreamcast games out there. And so I bought a Dreamcast. I bought Soul Calibur, and I bought NFL 2K. And that was two of the best gaming experiences I had at the time. A lot of people don't remember this. Well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, I know a lot of people know this, but a lot of people, you know, at the time, it was pretty magical in 1999 to buy a video game system that was already prepared for online. It was really weird that even the PS2, which launched a year later in 2000, they didn't have online, I don't think, until a year later. And so, at least a year later. So, it was really crazy to 
ha- have the first console with built-in online play, like, you know, right out of the box, no extra fees. And it was a, it was a web browser. You had a web browser disc you could pop in. Uh, and then there were games playing online right away and it worked and it worked. You know, I don't know how, but it worked. And un- unfortunately, oftentimes innovators aren't always as successful. And a lot of times it takes, you know, innovation paves the way for other people to steamroll you <laughs> essentially. And, uh, and anyway, though, this, the Dreamcast was awesome. I remember the, I want to say it was like the following February was when Crazy Taxi came out. That was like the first big release that came out after the launch titles that you had to have. So I bought Crazy Taxi. Um, I bought Slave Zero, which ended up being a very mediocre, like third person, sh- like mech game. Uh, and then I bought Evolution, which is a pretty generic RPG. But like, you know, th- so a lot of the earlier games were a little rough. Um, and then Fantasy Star Online comes out. And man, that, that was like life changing for me. Playing a game online with other people, chatting bought the keyboard so you could type it was just it was the dreamcast was so cool at the time it was like nothing else and that's what i think after you've been playing games for a long time like i have often you're just craving like a different experience and i wanted that different experience and sega offered that different experience in the dreamcast it was totally different totally different from the ps1 you know it embraced the late 90s early 2000s tech culture of the online the internet like blowing up and the on like it was it knew that that was the future the Dreamcast was a good system. And unfortunately, um, it, it Sega wasn't in the best position as a company. And so a lot of people don't realize that really what it came down to was Sega had to put more money into the Dreamcast's advertising marketing push to keep it going. If that wasn't successful, the whole company could have folded. And so they had to make a tough decision. Do we fold the company? Do we, do we take a chance and risk losing the whole company? Or do we fold the Dreamcast and go into software publishing? <laughs> and uh, and at in, in this time, Peter Moore had left and gone to Microsoft, and so there was a connection there. You know, there were there were Sega could go to Microsoft and say, "Hey, we'll license to you a bunch of properties. We'll publish games on your system, make some money, put some money in the bank, keep our company afloat." And essentially, that's what happened. <laughs> and it's interesting because I have this theory that. The, the current console wars, quote unquote, as silly and stupid as they are, I think we're actually we're, we're fighting the old battles. So PlayStation introduced a whole bunch of new gamers, I think, into the um, into the stratus, like into the into the ecosystem. And so you had a whole bunch of new gamers playing with the PlayStation. And then you had all these Sega people who were like, man, screw the PlayStation because it's hurting our system. And Sega fans were very loyal. The Genesis into the Saturn. Uh, this, you know, like they were very loyal and Sega hadn't done the best by them, but they were loyal. A lot of them did leave with the PlayStation, but a lot of them stuck around. And then like me, I bought a PlayStation, but also bought a Dreamcast. And so after Sega started to kind of migrate a lot of its properties to the Xbox, Microsoft also ushered in a whole bunch of new fans into the gaming ecosystem ecosystem. And so I think a lot of those people though, were also Sega converts because there were people who hated PlayStation and hated Sony with such a passion. They were looking for whoever was going to take them down and Sega and Microsoft teamed up um, much like Nintendo and Microsoft are teaming up now. And so they teamed up and uh, and I think that's where we're kind of sit with this current console wars. You have these diehard Xbox fans, which I almost wonder how many of them are old school Sega fans. I'd love to know that someday, like just to know that information. 
So, uh, so anyway, uh, the, uh, the Dreamcast launches, you know, the first year is kind of light. Fantasy Star comes out, though. It's a game changer. Everything about the Dreamcast feels unique and awesome. Uh, House of the Dead, I mean, my, as a light gun game, you only played in arcades. Perfect. Ar- home arcade, perfect port. Excellent. Dreamcast doing good. And then, <laughs> in November of 2000, the the mega ultra high speed train known as the PS2 comes bashing through and destroys everything in its path. The Dreamcast, a great little system. <laughs> the PS2. Oh hey, you know, every, you know everybody who had, you know, Sega had a third party issue a little bit on the Dreamcast, but it wasn't because of Sega. It was actually the similar trap that the Wii U fell into. The Dreamcast didn't sell a ton right away. And so companies were like, well, if we make a game for the Dreamcast, there's not a big install base, so we can't sell a lot of copies of the game. So we want to go, we're going to make a game for PlayStation instead because PlayStation's got, you know, 100 million units in homes. Dreamcast only has 10 million units in homes or whatever it ends up being. Um, And so actually, I'd like to know that I think the, uh, maybe I wonder what the Dreamcast total lifetime sales are, the NPD data. Um, Let's see, does it say here? Units sold 9.13 million in the whole span of its life. And so, you know, people didn't want to make a, a, a game for that. And so they thought, okay, let's, you know, let, let's go with Sony. And then when the PS2 is coming out, PlayStation's at the top of its game. And the PlayStation 2 is coming out. Oh, by the way, it's a DVD player. And by the way, it's got it's going to have an amazing library because everyone who was successful on the PS1 making games is now going to make games on the PS2. And so they were the PS2 was propped up in every single way for success. The Dreamcast seemed propped up every single way for failure. And it was just one of those situations that it, by no fault of its own or very little fault of its own, you know, the Dreamcast was just a blip on our radar. Um, and I remember specifically a few things. One... I remember when Sega made the announcement that they were no longer producing the Dreamcast hardware. They had said, hey, we have a warehouse full of hardware, so until we move through some of these units, we will not be creating any more Dreamcast consoles. A pretty innocuous comment. It was just kind of like, yeah, here we go. This is a stockholder thing. Like We're just telling our stockholders we're not spending any more money on Dreamcasts until we recoup some of the sales from the ones we have in storage. Okay, seems pretty reasonable, right? And this is around 2000, 2001. Internet blogs, websites, news, gaming magazines, all sorts of stuff pick up the story. Sega is dead. The Dreamcast is dead. That was like the headlines. That was what people were saying. Like, Sega's thrown in the towel. They're not making any more Dreamcasts. Well, once you start to get that story out there, you can't change that. You can't take that back. You can't unsay that. And so now you've got all these people used to come into the store, used to come into software, etc. And they would say, I heard, I heard Sega's out of business. Well, first of all, they're just not making Dreamcast anymore. So that's not, but then, so it was kind of like they were already slipping. And then that announcement caused like a weird panic that caused them just to not sell anymore again. It was just so strange. And then what's funny though about that is I remember when the Dreamcast went down to 99.99 brand new, that it was like the Christmas. I want to say it was either the, it was the year after the PS2 had come out. So I think the PS2 was still 299. Dreamcast was a hundred bucks. That thing flew at that price. I wish I had bought a couple new Dreamcasts for 100 bucks. It flew. It was an incredible uh, incredible piece of hardware for 100 bucks. And uh, you know, but at that time the games had been diminishing 
less releases, you know, and it's kind of like what the Wii U was, honestly, very similar, um, because the Wii U, you know, it was in that trap of, well, there aren't a lot of units, so no one's making games. Well, no one wants to buy it because there aren't any games. And then once the system, like, the, the company just throws in the towel, they're like, you know what, we didn't, we're, we're, we're not going to throw more money at this. We don't think more money will fix this problem that it has. And that was sad. And so uh, ultimately led to the death of the Dreamcast, but it's still beloved. We have a pretty healthy Dreamcast section at the store right now, and people still buy them. You know, there was a time when we had five or six Dreamcasts in any given time. We sold out of Dreamcasts like over the spring. We were out, and uh, now we've got about three or four back in stock. So, you know, it's, it's a system that still sells, and a lot of people, as you can see on Twitter, a lot of people still have a lot of love for the little the little white monster. <laughs> and it, it was a fun system. It was innovative. It was unique. It was different, and it was trying something different. And I don't think... I don't think it's fair to like jump on the Dreamcast as a bad system because it failed. And not that Sega didn't make mistakes, not that the Dreamcast was perfect, but it certainly it certainly was a good system. It was a fun system. It was different. And uh and I don't know. It, it was I I'll always have fond memories of it, you know, and I have nostalgic ties to it, but you know, what nostalgia often does, it reminds you of a feeling. And I remember that feeling I had when I bought that Dreamcast and I took it home and the, the GD-ROM drive is just like zip, 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 zip. The thing's super loud. And you're like, this is crazy. And the fan's super loud. And you're like, okay, all right. But but playing some of those iconic games, NFL 2K, Soul Calibur, Crazy Taxi, um, playing 18-wheeler, playing House of the Dead, playing um, the Spawn game, playing uh, Sword of the Berserk, right? So one of my favorite animes, Berserk, never had a game come out in the U.S. except on the Dreamcast. It's called Sword of the Berserk, Guts is Rage. It's, it was the only bit of story we got that took place after the cliffhanger ending of the anime we got here. It was like stuff like that was incredible. Dreamcast is great. I mean, I'm looking right past the camera is my Dreamcast collection, and I've got, you know, maybe 30 games. You know, not a ton. That includes imports. But there's some great stuff. There's Shenmue. You know, uh, Shenmue, which obviously... Um, uh, uh, um, Tokyo Extreme Racer Zero, or Tokyo Extreme Racer. These great games that like were spawned on the Dreamcast. And so anyway, I'm glad it exists. Uh, I'm glad it was a nice point in our life, but it also was a fundamental shift for Sega. They got out of the hardware business after that, and they they tout how successful they've been ever since, and it was the best financial move they ever made was getting out of the hardware business. And so good for Sega. And while, while we can always wax nostalgic and be upset that it, it didn't succeed, Sega as a company succeeded because of the death of the Dreamcast in a way. You know, and so there's something where you have to say, well, at least we still have Sega. They're publishing great games. Um, the Yakuza series comes to mind. Um, the, I just, I've always liked Sega, and I'd rather them stick around as a company. Um, and who knows? You know, you know that they're working on some sort of Dreamcast Mini, or like I'm surprised they almost didn't have it ready for the 20th anniversary. Um, <clears throat> but it is, uh, you know, it was a great system. It was, it was, it's fun to think back on on the times, and not just the system, and say you know, like every generic YouTuber who's talking about how great the Dreamcast is, like, to talk about actual memories, you know, and my, it, it made me think back to that, and that was, that was 20 years ago, man, it's not something I think about very often, is that right out of high school feeling, you know, you're uncertain, um, going to college at the time, like going to a tech school at the time, like part-time, so I'm only going to school half a day, have all this free time, but I'm trying to work, make money, selling plasma, like, it's just a weird part of my life where I was really unsure of the future, you know, never would have thought it would have brought me you know, right here. Whew, all right, so that's it for the, the stories and, and nostalgia bits for today. Um, but we're going to talk about our pickup pile of the week, and we have our game of the week. And let's see. 
You know, oh, didn't I didn't I decide to keep just the same music? Is that what I decided? I think I decided not to do music at all. What I want to do eventually is I want to get something recorded where it's just like, Greg's Game of the Week. You know, something. <laughs> it's going to be like that. I should actually just straight cut that and just make that every week. Greg's Game of the Week. Lightning strikes. Thunder and stuff. Um, okay. <laughs> so, um, my Game of the Week is A Nightmare on Elm Street for NES. Um, and I know I've talked about this on past podcasts, but again, I'm going through my NES collection. Like I'm going through it in a, in a more methodical way now so that, uh, you know, so that, uh, I don't repeat it again. <laughs> so Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay. This is one of the only four player NES games, four player at the same time. Get yourself a satellite for wireless four play. Get yourself a four score. If you want to play wired four player. But you can play four-player. And this game, I know, is notoriously reviewed by the Angry Video Game Nerd as one of the worst ever, like everything he talks about. But this game is okay, um, especially when it's four-player. It's kind of fun. You you run you, you, you like run back and forth around the street. Hi, Chester. So you run back and forth on the street. You go into different houses. You have to collect all of Freddy's bones, and you put them back together so you can beat his ass again. Um, and it's fun, you know, it's kind of got this open world feel because some houses you can't go to until you've been to a different house or you have to do things to unlock. Like it's, it's cool, man. I liked it. Um, there's bones you have to collect in every level, like a platforming. And then once you get every bone collected, then you can go fight the boss. And anyway, it's really fun. Get four people together to play this. I'm actually, I'm trying to figure out a time where I can get four people together to play this game. <laughs> I really, I really, really, really want to. I think it'd be great. Um, so game of the week, Nightmare on Elm Street for the NES pick it up it's about a if i had to guess it's about a 30 or 40 dollar cartridge and uh the complete in box one cost me like for a good condition one it was it was a probably 150 it was uh it was hard to find in good condition too really 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 tough all right and so next up is our pickup pile of the weekend and like i said in the beginning this is a little different because we have some games but i also have some comic books i want to talk about um, so, uh, I got my copy, I got a physical copy of Tetris 99 for the Switch. So this is cool because one, it comes with a year of Nintendo Online, and it comes with Tetris 99, which now includes the offline modes. I love Tetris 99, I liked the Battle Royale aspect of it, I loved the multiplayer Tetris, it was fun. I really, really, really liked it a lot. Um, and now it's physical, now I get to put it in the collection, boom, as a, as a playable game. Um... Next up, I can't believe I didn't have this game, <laughs> Sonic Adventure for the Dreamcast. We're just talking about the Dreamcast. Well, here we go again, Sonic Adventure for the Dreamcast. Uh, it's it's it was one of the first like well not one of the first but it was it was probably the best 3D Sonic game they had made up to this point. Um, it's fun. It works. It, it it didn't age well if I'm being honest. But you know again they were trying to bring all their franchises into the 3D realm. I think that's about as good as you could do with Sonic. I know now they've got better ones, but I think they should have always just stuck with side-scrolling speed and action you know but back then people didn't uh people really thought that uh you know you had to do 3d if you were going to make a 3d game you know or a system that could do 3d you had to you had to make a 3d and so um and then uh lastly i picked up i got in the mail my special uh, my special edition of the messenger uh, this was by, uh, I mean, uh, Sabotage made the game and then Devolver Digital published it and then Special Reserve Games created the physical copy. And just a, 
Oh, just an awesome game. It's At first, it feels like a Ninja Gaiden clone, but then it opens up into so much more. Definitely play this. It's on... Is it on PS4? Yeah, it's on PS4 now. Um, originally, it was only on the Switch and PC, um, but it's great. Pick it up wherever you can play it. The Messenger, it's like Ninja Gaiden, but it gets even better than that. Like, Ninja Gaiden meets Super Metroid. Like, you gotta play it. It's great. Um, okay, so... Now I'm gonna get to these... Uh, comic books here so um i've been i've been going on a classic x-men kick um so let's see what we got here um first up is uh, i got uncanny x-men 248 and so the cover is really awesome it's got uh um it's got colossus on the cover talking about how havoc killed storm it's just really like i love this old style like this was my x-men this was like the 90s x-men the 80s 90s x-men stuff was probably my favorite <clears throat> um and so i picked up a copy of that i've been going for a lot of x-men books um this was where uh uh long shot leaves the team um jubilee is in it um it was pretty cool it just it just had some some iconic ones um i picked up x-men 282 that is the first appearance of bishop in the comic books, Bishop's the time traveler who comes back because he finds out that one of the X-Men murdered Senator Kelly. Um, let's see. Then we have X-Men 268. This is a really great cover. This is an uh, Uncanny X-Men. It's got Wolverine, uh, Black Widow, and Captain America on the cover, like, posing together. Uh, it's And so it's them all together for the first time. <clears throat> it is uh, it is really cool book. <laughs> Um, it just, just great cover. I picked up uncanny X-Men 244. Um, and so 244, I'm trying to bring it up here. Um, this one was the first appearance of the M squad. Uh, and then I picked up uncanny X-Men 222. I'm just kind of bringing these up on my computer as I'm looking through them so I can more easily like not have to open up the comics and everything. And uh, 222 is the, let's see here. It has a Wolverine and Sabretooth on the cover. Uh, it's just, uh, man, it's, it's, ooh. It, it, like this art, especially the Wolverine versus Sabretooth stuff, which also I have um, 213, which Uncanny X-Men 213 has another Wolverine Sabretooth cover. It is freaking sweet, man. I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't pass it up when I saw it, man. The art is just incredible. So look up Uncanny X-Men 213. If you want to see, uh, like a really cool cover, and I'm trying to think if there's any significance to this. Like some of these episodes, some of these issues have like significance. Um, no, why did it go to the generic Wikipedia page? Um, oops, two thirteen, not twenty two thirteen. Let's see here. Uh, this is where Psylocke joins the team in two thirteen. Um, man, yeah, it's just, uh, like the cover is what kind of grabbed me on these. And same with this one. I got uncanny X-Men 205, which is it again, there's not really a significance to this issue, except that the cover has Wolverine, like in the weapon X stuff, like where he's getting the adamantium infused in his skeleton. It's just like, I see, I see stuff like this and like this cover is just iconic to me. And, and so I, I had to buy it. And then the, the jewel, the crown jewel, I got amazing Spider-Man 361, that is the first appearance of Carnage. Um, first full appearance of Carnage. And Carnage, one of my, the first comic book I ever read was an Amazing Spider-Man issue that was number two in the Maximum Carnage storyline. 
so Carnage and Spider-Man and Venom, like they all hold a very special place for me. And uh, who, who that is? Uh, I mean that that art is awesome. It's uh, it's it's Bagley and Emberlin in '91. It's just, man, this was like this was the pinnacle for me. And I understand that '90s comics aren't worth the most money, but my goodness, it uh, it just. Ah, I love it. These are this is my era of comics, and it's great that they're not worth a lot of money because then I can buy them and not feel bad about spending like ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars on an amazing or on a Spider-Man first appearance or something. Even as much as that would be cool, I don't have any attachment to that, and that's fine. Um, and I do have, uh, but yeah. So anyway, that's my pickup pile of the week. A little weird this week with some comics, but as I get more into the old stuff, I'll probably start mentioning them. But I also didn't have a lot of games to talk about, so you know, I had to give you, I had to give you something. You can't. Uh, Give you something, you know. Um, okay. Uh, and then our listener question of the week. What do you think are the major challenges facing a developer when they decide to make an open world game? Where do you think the sweet spot is in an open world game between exploration and quality quests and content? So um, open world games are interesting, right? Because they've become this new fad that uh, that is... That's like everything has to be open world now. Even, you know, Burnout Paradise was an open world racing game, which, ugh, it's like, I just did not like it. Not that the game's not good. It's just, you know, it, it's just an open world racing game. Like, I'd rather have a little more structure than that. The challenges with making an open world game is pretty much the second part of your question, which is the balance, right? How do you balance a huge world with lots of stuff to do and still be able to fully test it? You know, people give Bethesda a lot of crap for their open world games having a lot of bugs and glitches. But those games are immense undertakings. Um, Grand Theft Auto, you know, some of these games too, like they become so big that they're empty and then you have to balance it back and make it a little smaller but more full of stuff. I'm more of a fan of a smaller world more packed with stuff. But uh, that is definitely the challenge though is is also um, is, uh, you know, a, a lot of the difficulty of game design is pushing the player in a certain direction. You know, it's it's guiding them through an experience. Here... You know, in an open world game, oftentimes you guide them in an experience, but because you want all this extra side mission stuff, it can sometimes break up the continuity. And so you have to somehow have your side missions be engaging enough to want to pull the player away, but not so different that they pull them completely out of what they're doing. You know, like there's always that joke, right, that you're doing a main story where the world's about to blow up, but you're going to stop and rescue kittens and stuff for a couple hours while you're waiting for the world, you know. And, and, And so overall games, I think, suffer from that, obviously. So QA testing on the development side is really difficult because there's so many variables at any given time that could crash the game that you might not be able to test or even recreate if you did get it to happen in the first place. And then, of course, you have the fun factor, which is how do I how do I make this not droning and boring? Uh, I think recently, uh, Spider-Man for PS4 did a great job of that. You felt like Spider-Man the whole time, and none of the missions felt like you had to do them right away. The, like the urgency wasn't super there, so you could feel like you could take a break and do side missions, or you know, hey, I'm on my I'm on my way to a mission. What the hell is this? And then you stop a random crime because that's what Spider-Man would do. So, um, but yeah, that's definitely the challenge. Open-world games uh, can be difficult, but obviously not too difficult because. Almost everyone and their mother is making them now. <laughs> so, like, every game is open world. Even, even like, look at Metal Gear Solid Five. you know, like, that that was Kojima saying, hey, we're going to make an open world game. And that game suffered, part of what makes Metal Gear amazing, I would argue most of what makes Metal Gear amazing is the story. And so, the story in Metal Gear Solid Five, in my opinion, suffered heavily from the lack of um, 
consistency in the direction of the story because it was an open world game. You did random missions and then you would do story. It just felt disjointed. You know, it just didn't. It And I, I loved Metal Gear Solid 5, but its story was its weakest part. And I think part of it wasn't just the actual story itself. It was how the story was told to us. And it was told to us in a, in a really broken and disjointed way. And, and it just, it, there was, you know, oftentimes people made fun of Metal Gear because it was basically movies. Like the end of Metal Gear Solid 4 is an hour and a half movie. Uh, I'd almost rather have that than have the story bits so broken up that I couldn't enjoy it. You know, I'd almost rather have gameplay cutscene, gameplay cutscene, than have, you know, these story missions that really just didn't hold any weight. You know, and just didn't kind of fit in. And like the stuff with Huey and and all that stuff at the end is like, like. But there came a point where it's like, wait a minute, you did that? Like, I, I, he got accused of something, and and not no spoilers. You know, he got accused of something, and they kick him off of Outer Heaven, and you're like wait, he did that? Like, the story was told so poorly, I actually thought they were just trying to frame him for it. I didn't know he actually did it. <laughs> so stupid. Uh, overall games, though. Definitely a lot of challenges. All right, and that's it for the podcast, everybody. Thank you, as always, for listening and watching. We appreciate uh, every single week coming back and saying hey. Um, I love doing this, and I will keep doing it as long as you keep listening. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at GameTradeGreg. You can... Uh, subscribe on YouTube. It's youtube.com slash drop rate. You can follow us on Twitch. We do some Twitch live streams. I did a 10 hour monster hunter stream last Friday. Uh, that's twitch.tv slash the drop rate. Um, and of course you can subscribe and follow us on Spotify. iTunes is game talk radio. Spotify is game talk radio and SoundCloud is game talk radio. So thank you everybody as always for listening and watching. Have a great day. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.